Missions. I'm Dave Stevens, and uh, glad to be with you as we talk about medical missions, the past, the present, and the future. And uh, I know many of you have an interest in this area. Oftentimes, we have not taken the time to go back and understand some of our heritage in this area. And we are just going to give a, a light touch to that, but I think an important one, kind of helping looking at the, the trends of what have happened in the past to understand where we are now and where things are really going in the future because medical missions is changing, evolving uh, all the time. It's not the same as it was when I went out right after medical school and residency in 1980, and uh, it's changed a lot since then and will continue to change. New strategies, uh, new ways of uh, approaching uh, using healthcare as a means to share the gospel. So let's hit that. Feel free to ask questions. You won't uh, bother me with an interruption. We'll also have some time at the end. When we finish, I will not have time to stay here. Usually I stay around to have personal conversations, but I got another talk at three, so I'm going to rush out of here when we finish. So if you have questions, uh, either uh, ask, ask them as we go along or during our question and answer period towards the end. Or you can come to the chapel where I'll be speaking next hour, and then after that I've got all the rest of the afternoon. We can just sit and talk to your heart's content. So uh, they'll be happy if I show up on time for that next session. Let's talk about the, the roots of medical missions. And uh, it's interesting. In the early 19th century, uh, there were fewer than 15 medical missionaries before 1850. And uh, they were almost accidents. It's interesting as you look back at the history of mission missions. Um, you know, the average life expectancy back in that time for African missionaries uh, was about eight years. And for many, it was many less. Uh, I remember even for 50 years after that, the organization we went out with in Africa, World Gospel Mission, uh, came, the first missionary was a guy named Willis Hotchkiss. And Willis was not a doctor, but he came and was with uh, seven other missionaries. Uh, and they landed in Mombasa, and they hired uh, porters, and they went this three-month safari heading up country uh, to find their mission work. And uh, before they got there, uh, four people had died from malaria and other diseases. Two others were so sick with blackwater fever that they carried them on stretchers back to the coast and put them on ships back to England, and he was the only one left. And he stayed. Can you believe that? And uh, that whole area of the country was opened up with missions, and ultimately that evolved into Tenwick Hospital and the medical work uh, today. So great sacrifices. And back in those days, of course, there was very little medical treatment and really very few missionary doctors. Uh, medical training uh, in those days was seen for something for every missionary to do some of to help them survive. Uh, and oftentimes they would get very rudimentary uh, medical training because they were in such remote areas. By the late 19th century, uh, the focus had changed, and they were looking to care for other missionaries. We're going to send doctors along uh, to help keep all the missionaries alive and nurses along to help keep the missionaries alive. In fact, a, a study looking at British missionaries uh, towards the end of uh, end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, found that 61% of the deaths among missionaries uh, were easily treatable. And uh, 61% was 591 missionaries that had died when they looked at it. So at that period, they were sending missionaries along trying to keep the other missionaries alive, and their focus was on that outreach. I was at Locachokio, which is a mission hospital um, 
on uh, a river in Zambia a few years ago. And uh, I can still remember a beautiful sight with gorgeous big trees overlooking the Zambezi River. But there down near the river, it's an old hospital, down by the river are all the grave sites of all the missionaries that died while they served there. Children, babies, parents. So this, this was a big issue in a hospital that went back uh, a long time. Back in those days uh, in Germany, the mortality rate for deliveries was about, five, uh, was about 0.1%. And on the mission field for missionary wives, it was 5%. So it was almost 50 times higher. So these were huge issues. And then it kind of began, well, yeah, we got these doctors, and maybe they could start treating some of the local people and nurses, but we see them as a magnet in difficult areas to let real missionaries do their work. So the healthcare professionals were not expected to be evangelists, preachers, share testimony. You're just the magnet to bring it in for the real missionaries who are going to do the rest of it. So... Uh, that, that was a, a different day. And then as the 20th century began to dawn, uh, as Ruth Tucker writes, the greatest humanitarian effort the world has ever known began to take place. And there was a huge outpouring uh, of people. This really started with the student volunteer movement because back in the 1800s, most missionaries went out had very little formal training. And then God began to move on university campuses starting about in the 1890s up to about 1920, that period, where it began to move on university campuses in the United States and Kenya, and all of a sudden a much higher educated level of missionaries began to go out, and more professionals and, and nurses and doctors and engineers and others uh, began to, to head overseas and began to have a tremendous impact. Uh, a lot of those went to China. You wonder why there are 100 million Christians in China today? It's because of that student volunteer movement that reached the, the intelligentsia, the leadership in China, uh, when the church really began to grow. And so the numbers on the medical side began to dramatically increase. By 1900, remember there were just a few before 1850, by 1900 there were 650 medical missionaries overseas. And, and those numbers continued to grow. By 1925, uh, it had almost doubled to 1,157. And they brought modern medicine modern medicine for that time, to many countries. And uh, just tremendous stories of how dedicated healthcare professionals not only provided care, but were on the cutting edge of what was happening in, in medicine. Uh, John Scudder uh, went to, was one of the first medical missionaries uh, to India, or one of the first missionaries to India. And over the next four generations in his family, 43 of his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren ended up as missionaries over a total of 1,100 years of missionary service. And his granddaughter, doc, granddaughter Dr. Ida Scudder, one of the first female medical missionaries, um, opened up Valor uh, Medical School and, and the medical center there and one of the greatest mission hospitals in the world that she started. So you begin to see that impact. impact. Peter Parker, one of the first medical missionaries to China in 1895, he started the first modern medical uh, training program in China. He was the first one to use the general anesthetic in that country. Uh, Dr. Horace Allen uh, was the uh, medical missionary that opened up Korea. You know how many Christian Koreans there are now. Uh, before he landed, uh, Horace Allen, the first missionary that landed on the shore, they stoned him to death before he got off the beach and was killed. And, the, and Horace Allen came a few years later and opened up that country because the king's nephew 
had been injured and the local physicians could not stop his bleeding. And uh, Horace Allen said he was a physician and saved his life, and the king opened up the whole country for missionaries to honor him. And that's the history of what, uh, you know, of some of our uh, ones that went before us. Robert Laws, 1865, uh, was the first surgery with chloroform in Malawi. Uh, you and your career would feel like God had really used you if you started one hospital. Uh, Robert Law started 13 during his career, and uh, many of those still exist today. So these are some of the giants whose shoulders uh, we stand on. Uh, Jack and Albert Cook were missionaries' brothers, both physicians, uh, to Uganda in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and their hospital grew into Makari Medical School, which was the, the preeminent medical school in that country. They discovered tryptosomiasis and the cause of sleeping sickness and worked on how to treat it. So just a huge history. We could go on just talking about medical missionaries who made an enormous difference, even to modern time. I remember when I was in med school here in U- University of Louisville uh, back in the mid-70s, and uh, Dennis Burkett came to speak to us. You heard of Burkett's lymphoma? And, uh, and he was also the one that understood the role of roughage in the diet, having to do with cancer and other issues. And uh, he was a, a missionary in Uganda, widely respected around the world for his research. And as a medical missionary, uh, he had a tremendous impact. Um, by 1963, things had grown, and there were 1,231 mission hospitals, best as anybody can estimate back at that time, uh, because uh, oftentimes medical missionaries were so busy doing things they weren't counting. Uh, many of them had training schools, nursing schools, uh, a few medical schools. Uh, the quality and percentage of hospitals continued to increase. In 1935, 50% of the hospitals in China were mission hospitals. A huge number. Uh, in India, about the same time, 20% of the beds and 66% of the nurses in all of India had been trained in mission facilities. In 1968 survey, 43% of the hospital beds in Tanzania, 40% in Malawi, 34% in Cameroon, 30% in Zambia, 46% in Taiwan. Now, in some of those countries, many of those hospitals are now nationalized or whatever. But even if you look at across Africa, WHO did a study just a couple of years ago, and they reported 30 to 70% of the hospitals in Africa are either still mission or church hospitals depending on the country. In 1991, when I left Kenya to return to the U.S., 37% of the hospital beds in Kenya were still in mission facilities, and some of the best care uh, that you could get were in those hospitals. So what are the today's trends? We kind of look back a little bit, and what a wonderful heritage, and God has used these to be great testimonies. Uh, one of my heroes uh, is a guy named Norval Christie. Norval Christie was an ophthalmologist up in northwest Pakistan, up where Osama bin Laden is supposed to be. And uh, I remember the first time I heard Norval, this has been back in the 80s, he was uh, speaking. And uh, at one of our continuing medical and dental education conferences for missionary doctors, we were in Taiwan. And Norval got up to give his lecture, and his first comment was, he said, I want to share with you how I do uh, 170 cataract operations every morning uh, before 10 a.m. And this is, this is a bunch of hard-bitten missionary doctors that have done it all, and they're all kind of sitting back on their heels like, what? He said, well, yeah, we start at 4 a.m. because of the heat, but, you know, about 170 by, by, by 10 a.m. 
gets too hot after that to operate. And so he starts showing his pictures of his operating room where he had three operating tables, and there's a patient laying on each operating table. And, and uh, at the end of the table is the next patient sitting on the operating table at the bottom, ready to lay down. And then there's three on a little bench at the end. The next one going to get up in the arm. And there's 50 people in the hallway getting their retrobulbar injections. And on the wall is a bank of sterilizers. And, uh, you know, about this time, one of the missionary doctors, oh, excuse me, excuse me, Dr. Christie, uh, I'm just doing some calculations here. How do you have time to scrub between cases? He said, oh, I've learned the secret. You don't have to scrub. And, you know, we're going, well, what do you mean you don't have to scrub? He said, well, if you don't touch the patient, you don't have to scrub between patients. I don't touch the patient. He could take a cataract out in about a minute, 30 seconds, and his infection rate was as good as the Mayo Clinic. Flew all over the world teaching his techniques and the instruments he designed as he began to retire. When he left Pakistan, he received their highest civilian award for his work there. He had a 2,000-bed ophthalmology hospital in the bush of Pakistan. Those are the shoulders that you may be standing on someday. Today's trends. Mission hospitals are more costly to run in personnel and finances. Medicine has gotten modern. It's got more expensive, and that's true in mission facilities. Some mission organizations have been stepping back from health care, closing hospitals, turning hospitals over to national groups is one of the trends that we've seen. I think that's beginning to reverse. I think we were seeing more of that uh, in the last 20 years than we're seeing now. The medical expectations are higher on the ground. Uh, when you go in as a pioneer uh, uh, healthcare provider in these areas, primitive areas, you can make a huge difference, uh, often with very simple interventions. Uh, medical expectations as countries develop uh, increase. Um, one of the mission hospitals I associated with, I just heard they're getting a CT scanner. You know, the medical expectations are going up. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, in second world countries, as they begin to develop, there's less need uh, for hospitals and missionary work as they develop their own health care systems. India would be a great example of that. Many of the mission hospitals have now uh, been uh, running by nationals. There's very few uh, medical missionaries compared to what there used to be in that country. Third world countries, often the needs are even greater uh, because of economies, of, of AIDS, because of disease, because of corrupt governments, because of whatever. Uh, the needs in some countries have actually increased. Um, a good example of that would be the Congo, where a lot of great missionary work was done and because of civil wars and problems. Uh, you know, a lot of those places uh, did not survive, and some of them are back up and starting again, but there's great needs in that country uh, greater than sometimes even years ago. Uh, missionaries demanding a little higher standards, and that's maybe us Americans and others who come in with a set of expectations that are different than generation two before us as far as how my living is going to be and my children's education and all those things uh, come to impact. The world's getting smaller and uh, Africa and Asia are not as far away as they used to be. Uh, some less willing to sacrifice, though I think that's beginning to change as well. And I think listening to Rick Donlan this morning, you got some of that, and that willingness to die to self. Um, but I remember seeing this in, towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s and stuff where, you know, a lot of times students and residents would come and they would talk about, you know, I'm here to have this experience because I want God to use it to have an opportunity to speak to me. And then after a while, it was almost like a job interview. Tell me about my schooling, how much vacation do I get, you know, all this guy. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. The bottom line is, did God call you here? All those other things are just peripheral. 
and some of that was, you know, looking at lifestyle more than looking at calling. And I think it's something we need to be very uh, careful about. Indigenization. Uh, oftentimes this has been driven more by economics than ideology. Um, the hospital is expensive. We don't have enough personnel. We need to nationalize it. Let's just have the nationals run it. Uh, sometimes that has not worked very well. We'll talk more about nationalization and how to go about that and what seems to work best. The quality and quantity of care um, uh, can dis- decrease when you turn a hospital over. Why? Because they have less resources. That's not always the case, but you see it again and again. One of the trends has been how do we nationalize? A good, good goal, but one of the concerns is, well, will it survive after we do that? And oftentimes what is forgotten is all the money and free services and other things that come into a hospital because missionaries are there. Uh, I know when I was at Tinwick, one of the big issues we were trying to nationalize, and we had a very difficult time getting national doctors to come. Why? Because the system was set up in such a way in the country at that time that if you left the government health care system, you had no potential for further training. So health care personnel didn't want to come or they had better benefits or whatever. And so when you nationalize, trying to compete with that, with finances and salaries and benefits, uh, can make it difficult for the hospital to survive. Some places have been a hostile takeover by the government. Government walks in and says, we're going to nationalize all the health care. You guys are out of here. And that's how indigenization has taken place. And there's been a tendency to criticize mission groups who do not go through an indigenization process. And we're going to talk about uh, some of my feelings about that as we talk about what is really going to help things work well in the future. Um, I think some of these indigenization trends that we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, uh, there's a lot more sanity in place about how to go about that and do it well, and we'll talk about those. Uh, mission hospitals are becoming higher tech, and uh, which means a lot more equipment, buildings, uh, and capabilities. One of the very frustrating things for any of us involved in medical missions is to have the knowledge and abilities to help someone but lack the tools to do it with. I can still remember a young child who came in who had aspirated a bean down into uh, their lungs, and we did not have a bronchoscope small enough to get into this child's lung. And the child ended up getting an abscess, having a major chest operation to deal with it, and barely surviving. Whereas if we had just had the right tool... We could have had the thing out and prevented all those problems. And that can be multiplied by whatever your specialty may be uh, and what you're able to do. And one of the big battles in, in missionary medicine for healthcare professionals is what's appropriate, what can we support, what can we do reasonably, what should we have, what shouldn't we have, because the idea that just more is better is not always the case in some countries. So trying to find that appropriate level is a big deal. Better communication and consultation is available. Uh, We have a system um, set up in CMDA with uh, two or three hundred doctors who are on call by email for consultation. So you can take a picture of your dermatological disease or an x-ray or send some lab work or whatever. And whatever specialty you're looking for, we have a guy on call or a lady on call or a number of them in the country who will come in, give you an opinion what the problem is. I would have died for that in the 70s. I think as you're sitting there scratching your head, I don't know what this is. And you don't have all the diagnostic abilities or the expertise for every different area. And so now a lot better communication. Most every uh, mission hospital, a lot of other facilities have Internet and the capability to communicate and consultation. And so uh, 
uh, telemedicine is going to be more and more important in missionary health care, uh, not only in diagnosing and treating, but also in training. And I think one of the great open doors we're going to see is the possibility for you to be a medical school professor in the United States or teaching a residency and be teaching residents in Egypt or Mozambique or helping in, you know. I, one of my, there, there's a medical school opening up in Malawi, a Christian medical school. And I was talking to one of the doctors who's going to be the dean of it, a Korean-American doctor. And I said, oh, I know this guy down at the University of South Carolina that has put together this whole histology course. And it's all online and all the slides are there. And, they, you know, and you can do everything. You won't have to have a histology professor. He'll do it from South Carolina. That's going to be the norm in the days ahead because of better communication and consultation. New innovations making old problems solvable. Uh, if you were in the ethics lecture I did this morning, you heard me talking about the difficulty with, you know, rationing and oxygen. And one of the things when I first went is we had so few tanks of oxygen and they were difficult to get and you had to ration them. I remember when I left residency, that was back when oxygen concentrators looked like, you know, a small VW. And, uh, but they were putting inline oxygen in one area of the hospital, and I got two of those, and we took them overseas with us in our shipment. And we so now we have four or five kids hooked to these oxygen concentrators, and all of a sudden oxygen wasn't a, business, a big deal. And then we went and got a commercial oxygen concentrator and oxygenated the whole hospital and put it on the wall. Technology and new innovations take old problems, which was transport and cost, and make them solvable, or you begin making your own IV fluids, or doing all sorts of things, or build your hydroelectric plant for electricity. I was just talking to a missionary doctor from Cameroon, and they're getting ready to build a hydroelectric plant that'll make one megawatt of electricity for their hospital. And it's going to revolutionize what they can do. Uh, so new innovations making old problems solvable. Short-term staff. We have tons of short-term staff. Um, you know, in 1965, I went on my first medical, our first mission trip. My dad took me to Haiti. Most of my friends had never been on an airplane. Everybody's been on an airplane these days. And almost everybody's been on a mission trip. Uh, we have a scholarship uh, for a student going into medical missions we give each year to help to cover the cost of medical school. It's $100,000 scholarship, so you may want to apply for it if you're going to medical school soon. But... Um, I get, those, I get those applications, and we'll have 30, 40 applications. Some of those students have been on a dozen mission trips before they went to, to medical school. That's the norm these days because we just have a lot of short-term missions. One of the problems of that has been is everybody wanting to do short-term missions, and there's not as many people wanting to do long-term missions, which is something that is very needed uh, to really have an impact, and we'll talk about that. Uh, there's a deficit in long-term leadership and vision. If you have a lot of short-term people and people not staying as long, who owns the vision? Who keeps the thing moving forward? Who's the leader and the visionary for the ministry? Uh, short-term and keeping the doors open, broader range and higher level of service. Short-term, one of the reasons that Tenwick developed as much as it did, because we had a lot of short-term people coming in that could help with the workload to give some of the long-term missionaries enough time to solve the big problems, building the ward, starting the programs, building the hydroelectric plant, uh, you know, starting the training schools and all those type of things. So short-term missions can make a huge difference in just helping with the workload. And we had specialists come in to do things that we may not have the expertise to do. So there's positives and negatives of all aspects of this. It's a great tool for recruitment. I remember a few uh, number of years ago, 
Uh, one of my colleagues was at uh, Kajabi Medical Center, and he talking to the doctors about short-term missions. And he said, you know, we were, I was heading up rural medical missions then, and he said, you know, what about all these people coming for a month or longer? And they said, well, going around the room, well, it's a lot of work, you know, we got to take them out to the game preserve and pick them up at the airport and get them orientated and blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, so maybe it would be better if we didn't have those folks here. And they all turned around and smiled and said, that's how we first came. Every one of us came here that way first before we came long-term. And so short-term experiences are often the way God uses to speak into people's lives. The priorities are changing in medical missions. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, community health was just a concept and now integrated into every, uh, almost every medical mission effort. It's going to be one of the keys in the 1040 window. Um, you saw the name Charles Fielding this morning and heard Rick Donlin speaking about that. And... Uh, and he's a, he's a great family practice doctor, but the way he's penetrated uh, and, and started churches in this country is by not starting a hospital or opening a clinic. It's going door-to-door doing community health. Why? Because in a radically Muslim country, you've got to get behind a closed door before you can even share your faith. You go preach on a street corner, somebody will pull a pin on a grenade and put it in your pocket, and people will not listen to you because they will be targeted. So you work behind closed doors. So some of these techniques of teaching prevention and taking care of people, doing house visits, and uh, taking innovative ways to carry the gospel into difficult areas. Uh, there's a great emphasis on residency and medical school training. Um, we, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Associations, has helped through our arm called PACS, Pan-African College, uh, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, starting surgical residencies in mission hospitals all across Africa. Why? Because there's one surgeon for every quarter of a million to two and a half million people in Africa. That means if you lived here in Louisville and we had that kind of range, you'd have two or three surgeons in town. Can you imagine what that'd be like? And so realizing that one of the keys for long-term change is training national doctors. There's now at Embigo Hospital an OBGYN residency they're getting ready to start up, an internal PED residency. There's family practice residencies. And so one of the things we're seeing is God raising up folks to come out to actually do training overseas because your graduates know the language, know the culture, and they're not going anywhere. It doesn't cost a great deal of money to keep them there. And that's really one of the big trends as I look in medicine. Working in national hospitals, we're seeing that as well, especially in the Far East and Asia where you're going into China and other places. You're not starting new hospitals or new clinics, but you may be working in a national medical school. You may be teaching or training as a way to have an entrance into that country. There's many medical schools and residency programs around the world that would welcome you to come and teach and train, and that may be your intro into that culture. Uh, medicine's going to be one of the keys to penetrate closed countries. Uh, I think God is raising up a generation of, of, of Christian healthcare professionals. You look at this meeting, you probably, if this is your first time here, you probably came in thinking, well, this will be a nice little conference, right? And then you came in and go, whoa, what, uh, look at this place. Look at all these people. And God is just beginning to raise up a generation, and I think it's to complete the Great Commission. You guys might be able to get Christ to return. Did you know that? Because the Bible says as soon as all these unreached people know, he's going to come back. And where are all these unreached people? About 10,000 of them. Most of them are in this 1040 window. And they don't like traditional missionaries. You don't get in very easily in Muslim countries and some other countries. 
because, uh, but you can get in as a healthcare professional, and you can train, you can teach, and you can share your faith, and uh, they'll tolerate it because they want you so badly. Uh, we started a program a few years ago, and if you're interested in, you go to CMDA's uh, booths over here at our Center for Medical Mission, because there's such a long time that you're going through this professionalization process, your training process, and it's easy to get off course. I started with a whole bunch of, of girls and guys who were going into medical missions at the Christian College, and I was the only one that got there, and it was by the grace of God. Uh, because my last year of residency, I got all this, I was chief resident, all this recruiting going on, come on, join our practice, we'll give you this much money, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I began to rationalize away my call. Now, don't get me wrong, I did it in a very good spiritual way. <laughs> you ever tried bargaining with God, you know? Uh, I'll teach Sunday school. I'll do two short-term mission trips a year, you know, all this thing. I remember the night I got up and got, woke my wife up about 2 o'clock in the morning. We got down on our knees in my last year of residency and, and said, no matter what, we're going to follow what God called us to do. Uh, but that happens during that professionalization when you're tar- tar- uh, taught to be in charge, take control, and that, that lessons begin to come. And then you begin thinking, I don't know if I want some mission organization to tell me when to come and go. And what about the kids? And Maybe when they get older, we'll go and all this kind of stuff. And so we started this program called Your Call. It's just a mentoring program for those that are planning to go into medical missions during their training years, coming alongside uh, with resources and and, uh, scholarships for trips overseas and uh, ideas and videos and all sorts of things, kind of help keep you on track. When we started that, I thought, I believe we may have a couple hundred, you know, sign up for it. We have 1,200 students that are in that program already. Um, because God's raising up this generation. I just stand back in awe, and I think it's going to be to finish the Great Commission. Education of national uh, doctors and advanced techniques and knowledge. One of the really easy ways to get in with graduate doctors in a lot of difficult-to-access countries is to go over and teach and train them. We have a program through CMDA called Medical Education International, and they'll go over and come in and teach techniques or teach diagnostic capabilities or whatever with doctors as a means to make friends that ultimately introduce them to Christ. So there's a lot of new ways, more than just the traditional, I'm the pioneer missionary doctor in this area, uh, to, to use medicine as a way to really make a difference. God may be calling you to academics, and that may be one of the reasons uh, for it. Is missionary medicine still needed? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Some missionary organizations have wrestled with that because uh, some have seen this as, well, it's expensive, it takes a lot of personnel, it pulls a lot of money, uh, it's difficult to manage, blah, 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 blah. And some have said, no, we're going to kind of step back from it. Um, But the answer, I think, is very clearly yes. Uh, The Bible tells us that very clearly. It says, Luke 9, 2, he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. If you come into CMDA's headquarters, there's a big stone fireplace, and that's inscribed in the stone right as you come in the entrance. Uh, Christ could have done anything when he came to earth. You ever thought about that? He could have started a satellite TV ministry, right? You say, yeah, that was Palestine. Yeah, but he was God. I mean, you know, he could have done that if he wanted to. Instead, he only did three things. He preached, he teached, and he healed. And there's interestingly more instances of him healing in the four Gospels than any other activity because 
he realized that he met people at their point of need and then he could introduce them to his father. Medical missions is a powerful way to share the gospel if it's done correctly. Now, what's the other side of that coin? The other side of that coin, it is so easy to get busy doing good things. I'm saving lives. I'm stamping out disease. I'm improving health. And forget the most important thing, which is sharing the gospel. See, I've got bad news for you all in healthcare. You're in a losing business. Did you know that? Sooner or later, every patient you'll ever treat is going to die. There's only one that can get them to live forever, and that's your Heavenly Father. And so where medical missions can go wrong, and I've seen it happen, is that they get off course doing the medical things, which are good, and forget the most important thing. Christ never did that, did he? You don't hear of him not dealing with people's souls. And then he sent out his disciples to do the same. He said, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Uh, You know, the seamless integration. Um, You know, some of you are in med school. Some of you are in pre-med, nursing school, whatever. I, you know, I know residency. I know the pressures that you go through. I've been there. I hate to give you the bad news. You go into missionary medicine, they'll even be worse. (laughs) There'll be a lot of pressures and a lot of needs. But God really taught me a lesson about that. When I was at Samaritan's Purse and doing all their medical relief work, um, we were in Somalia um, for nine months through Black Hawk Down and after. And I remember the first morning after we got there um, with our team and we were getting all organized. And then the next day, the next day we headed out to a feeding camp uh, to provide medical care. And I had worked in Africa for years by then, been a missionary for 11 years. And so I knew it was going to be bedlam. There was no health care in the country. It was a famine. There was war. And we were in this feeding center. And so I got everybody beforehand briefed them. we got to work fast. You take care of the most acute illness. we got to prepackage medicine. We're going to unit dose package. We need to get people in lines. It's going to be bedlam if we're not organized. And, uh, you know, we went out there. And I think there were three or four of us that were diagnosing. And then we had our ancillary staff. And so things went well. And, I mean, we saw 400 patients. I mean, we were clicking it, taking care of people. But then about 5 o'clock rolled around, and the sun went down around 6, and there were still three or 400 that weren't going to be seen. And they got desperate. And they broke through the rope barriers, and they started mobbing us, carrying their children, their child. Please, please see my child before you go. My wife is so sick. Can't you see my child? Can't you see my wife? Can't you and begging us. And the people that were the security folks at the camp, which was run by some group, I don't know, UN or government or whatever it was, just local Somalis they had hired to keep order took sticks and started beating the people back. You ever been in a clinic where people were getting beaten? They were so desperate to see you. And I finally stood up on the table and said, you know, uh, we'll be back tomorrow. We'll make sure we see all of you before we go, and, and please, we'll, we'll be back to get them calmed down. But, you know, as I begin to process and think about it, God kind of reminded me. He said, David, you saw a little bit of today what it was like for me every day. C- could you imagine how many people want to see you if they could just touch you and get healed? Could you imagine the mob scene that was? I mean, I, I, I can't, you know, and, and God just kind of came and said, David, you think you've got pressure. <laughs> I understand. I've been there. 
I've been there. In the midst of of all that we deal with in, in medical missions, I think something we need to remind ourselves of, that God understands and he's done exactly what we've done and even to a greater degree. So what will the successful medical missionary look like in the years to come? I think there's a number of things. First of all, they'll have a clear vision and mission of what God's called them to do. See, in those situations where it's difficult, what is going to hold you is the knowledge that God has called you to do this. You know, I think God's called us all to be missionaries, but I think he often calls those he puts in difficult situations in a a clear way. And I think the reason for that is very similar to what he did with the Israelites. Remember when they crossed the Jordan and they were going in to fight the battle? They'd already been 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't have enough faith, and they weren't really real sure now about what they were going to do. And God miraculously opened the Jordan River and said, you walk across. And then he said, I want you to build an altar. Take 12 stones, build an altar right there by the river. And then what did he say to them? Because when things get difficult, you come back, bring your children. You remember what I did at this river when I split it wide open. That's why a call is important, because you've got to go back to that altar and say, I know this is tough, this is difficult, but God has called me to do this. A clear vision, a clear mission of what you're about. Uh, have well-trained and committed staff. In other words, be involved in training and realizing that, uh, as I said this morning in the introduction for Rick, the greatest investment of a man's life or a woman's life is to invest it in others. Your legacy is in those that you train and teach, and you need to be doing that. Uh, there will be people with broad training. They'll have a long-term staff core who understand the culture and no language. We cannot complete the Great Commission with short-term staff, short-term volunteers. Because you don't know the knowledge, you don't know the custom, you don't have the relationships. A lot of places where we have to go, it's not going to be converts per year. It's going to be year per converts, years per converts. And that takes relationship and uh, a determination. It's going to be expatriate and national partnership. As I've looked and seen what works well in healthcare, it's not indigenization and everybody leaves. Oftentimes it's a partnership. The nationals may be in charge of the ministry. That's great. That's the way it is at Tenwick where I was. We worked for that for years. But coming along in partnership to do that, and working together, that's how God created his church to be brothers and sisters in ministry. And medicine is so complex and changing and expensive that often that's necessary to bring some Western resources in. We'll have a commitment to evangelization and discipleship. And if the devil can't get you to turn your back on the Lord, he'll just get you so busy you forget to do what you're supposed to do. Then you'll wonder why you wake up one day burnt out. It's because you've got focused on temporal things and medicine as it ended to itself. So a commitment to evangelism and discipleship. I stay very busy as the head of Christian Medical and Dental Association. We have 44 different ministries, but I tell the board they've got to let me out of the country each year to take a mission team somewhere, and I need to be out speaking. Why? Because the ministry refreshes my batteries for all the other stuff I have to do. And you're going to find the same thing in medical missions. Successful medical missionary mission will be well managed. One of the things I quickly learned as uh, arriving on the field that all the skills I had in healthcare, as good as they were, weren't going to solve many of the problems that we had. 
In fact, I could do a great C-section and treat malaria, wasn't going to get a nursing school started or have clean water in the hospital or have 24-hour electricity or have enough beds or all the other issues we're dealing with. And, and what really is, is needed in medicine is to realize that good medical education is not enough. It involves management and leadership skills. And you may get over to the field and have to come back and learn it there on the job with a good mentor or come back and get extra training in those areas. But uh, so much of the problems you see in medical missions and institutions and interpersonal conflicts and all the rest of it is the lack of the right leadership and management. And... Um, and so don't, if you have opportunities to get those skills, you need to get them. I just finished a book that will be out next month called Leadership Proverbs, uh, dealing with putting in nice bite-sized little nuggets with wit and wisdom leadership principles to teach leadership because it's so important in medical missions or any part of life and uh, having those leadership skills. Uh, successful medical mission will be self-supporting. By that, I mean they will have operational funds that will cover their local ministry. There may be outside funds coming in from, for capital and program development and all the rest of it. But the key is going to be you have a self-sustaining outreach. If not, they throw you out of the country, the whole thing falls apart. So it's going to be that. Utilize short-term staff well. Um, you know, a lot of people want to come and have the experience, and that's great. But one of the things that often happens in mission facilities is you're so busy that there's not proper follow-up, there's not proper debriefing, and many of the opportunities to get those that have come and had a wonderful experience short-term to come long-term are missed because you never close the deal. And uh, that means follow-up programs and a debrief as they're leaving, talking about what's this experience meant to you, what's God saying to you, what's the next step. What, what are you going to do to continue following Christ after this experience and, and doing short-term mission well as a good recruitment skill and to optimize their experience? I'll have a multifaceted ministry. Um, it'd be training and, and curative and networking and ministry and community-based development and health and all those type of things. You find that uh, in many areas a broad type of approach really what makes the difference. And keep the main thing the main thing that we've talked about. Um, the Center for Medical Missions, I just threw this slide in, is an organization that we started in CMDA to help those in medical missions, uh, which is on-site training. The Epistle, if you get overseas long-term, the Epistle is a publication, monthly publication with resources, networking, training, and teaching on leadership, management, and a host of issues. Your call I've talked about. Uh, for students, we have rotation scholarships if you want to go overseas. There's a whole manual online that can get you uh, all the hospitals that we know of where they take students and residents for rotations. Uh, we can tell you where you can find money to help pay for that and go to cmda.org. That will help you as you begin to sort out. If you're in medical school training or college or wherever, I encourage you to keep throwing fuel on the fire of missions. And to do that is to get back frequently to the field and experience it again. God keeps your vision clear that way when you're in training for so many years. Uh, there's a CEO Summit. I mentioned the Sturry Scholarship, which is the one that's a $100,000 scholarship uh, that a donor gave us each year uh, for someone going long-term into medical missions. So lots of things there. I don't know if that's me or who that is, but somebody's setting this thing off. Um, many missionaries had preached Jesus Christ to me, and many medical missionaries... Uh, lost my place. Many missionaries had preached Jesus Christ to me, and many missionaries had taught Jesus Christ to me. But in the Maganga, I have seen Jesus Christ 
And there was an African medical trainee talking about Dr. Carl Beck, who was one of the great missionaries in the Congo, realizing that lives are touched and changed uh, through medical missions and can make a huge difference in people's lives. Questions? we got about five minutes. Dumped a lot on you. I think one of the most exciting careers you can have is as a medical missionary. You want a life that's exciting and thrilling and challenges your faith and makes you grow and meets people's needs and changes people's hearts. Be frank with you, I'd be bored practicing in this country. Yes. Korea's got a huge number going out, um, and I would not be surprised, I haven't seen the numbers, that pretty soon um, other countries are going to have more medical missionaries than the U.S. is. Uh, Australia's uh, sending out a lot of missionaries. Other countries are involved. We had missionaries from at our hospital from Japan, from India, from Korea, from, you know. So it's really a, a multi-world movement and not just the U.S. any longer. Other questions? Yes? I heard you mention that you think that in the future telemedicine is going to have a significant impact. Right. How many, how, how much of a footprint right now does telemedicine have? There's been some, it's growing and a lot of it with uh, internet capabilities. They're actually putting up a satellite system over Africa and, and that part of the world, uh, which is going to make it available almost anywhere on the continent. So a lot of new technologies. Um, you know, it's no substitute for long-term presence, but I think it's a great adjunct to it. And um, I think the footprint is growing. We had a number of groups that were trying to do stuff 10 years ago, five years ago, which were kind of stumbling and stuttering and that type of thing. Now you're really starting to see steady movement. So I, I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the years ahead. Yes, question, other questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you hear the question about reintegration back in the field after a long period of time. And medicine is so totally different overseas depending on where you are. Where I was, you know, here it's colon cancer and heart attacks. I saw two heart attacks and no colon cancer in 11 years. So, you know, you're not treating the same diseases. Um, I think some of the principles we put together is that when you're home on home assignment, we wanted our medical missionaries to be working two to three months in American medicine. Uh, getting home a little more often than perhaps every four years, um, continuing medical and dental education, which CMDA does in Thailand and and uh, in Kenya. Every other one year, they're one place and one another, where there's you know 10 days, two weeks of 80, 75, 80 percent of it's American medicine teaching and training. It's not practicing, but at least helping keep you up to date um, are some of the principles. Um, but one of the, the if you're there for 40 years, that's going to be an issue. Medicine moves on, and uh, you're, you know, and uh, that's I think one of the prices of career medical missions overseas. Um, though I'll add this to the other side of it, it makes it sound like well, medical missionaries aren't up to date. Medical missionaries tend to be the broadest trained physicians and nurses of any group you'll ever see. 
because they deal with everything in many situations. It depends where you are. But if you're in a bush hospital, you've learned to take care of everything. But it is an issue. But we, we run uh, every year two weeks of continuing medical education with seven medical school and residency professors uh, with going four streams of education to keep medical missionaries up to date to try to help meet this need. Any other questions? Yes. A lot of the mission hospitals are outside of the 1040 window right. in areas that are heavily evangelized. What are your thoughts on that? And would you steer, you know, a prospective uh, uh, person that wants to be in long-term missions away from that type of scenario and into more of a closed type country? Yeah. Uh, we actually did a survey of those 1,200, um, your call people that, uh, students, residents that were planning to head overseas. 50% of them said they're heading the 1040 window. 25% other places and 25% didn't know. So God's directing them. Um, all three of my kids, they're heading to the 1040 window. Afghanistan, you know, my grandkids will be some wild place near the Somali border or somewhere. Um, I still think, though, there's a place, uh, if we shut all the mission hospitals in Africa, it'd be a world of hurt. Um, so I think it's still both. One of the things I've really been advising for people moving towards the 1040 window or pioneer missionary work is to go to one of the more established mission hospitals like where you are for a year or so where they can really learn a lot about program development, training, teaching, all those kind of things, and then go out versus going out and trying to recreate the wheel wherever they go. And uh, I know when we started our community health work uh, at Tinwick, the smartest thing we did is we took two one-week periods and went to every program we could find, found what was working well, what was not working well, and then came back and tried to solve their problems before we started our program. And I think that's true in the 1040 window, even though some of the strategies will be a lot different. You may go to the 1040 window looking for stuff, but learning from those who have gone before is going to be the key to penetrating a well and not spinning your wells. So I think there still needs to be both to answer your question. I think God's moving in people's hearts to move a lot of people to finish the Great Commission. We're finished. Thank you all very much. I'm going to pack up. If you want to talk to me while I'm packing up, that's fine. But when I leave, I'll be leaving. Thank you. God bless.